Hey everyone, this is Brian Hertel. I edit the CoinWorld podcast and I'm here to let you know about another fun and free product we offer through CoinWorld, our email newsletters. With our newsletters, you can pick from 10 options like US coins, world coins, or paper money to tailor the high quality content you receive. Pick the topics that interest you most or choose them all and get the latest from CoinWorld delivered straight to your inbox. Signing up is free and easy to do. I've put a link in the show notes for you, so just click there, Choose your content, and your email newsletters will be on the way shortly. Click on that link today and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Bullfinch and Jeff Stark. Welcome to another episode of the Coin World Podcast. I'm Jeff Stark. And I'm Chris Bullfinch. We are delighted to go back way back in time this week for a vast exploration into the annals of ancient coinage. We have an interview with Peter Kampa who discusses the importance of ancient coins and hoards and and the sort of the battle over ownership of those. And we have lots of uh, historical nuggets and tidbits for you this week. As always, if you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, or you've enjoyed any of our previous content, or even if you didn't, feel free to subscribe wherever you get your podcast and to keep on listening. It's free. It doesn't cost you anything. And you know we really appreciate people following us. We appreciate getting any kind of feedback. So just remember, if you enjoy this podcast at all and you want to support us, the best way to do that is subscribe. And feel free to reach out to us with questions, comments, concerns, etc. Anytime. So we interviewed Peter Tompa this week, and he's deeply involved in the ancient coin collecting community. But first, before we get into to talking about ancient coins or, or talking with Peter Tompa, I think it's useful to explain just what we mean when we say ancient coin, which leads us into a very broad term of the week. So ancient coins seem on the surface to be kind of sort of obvious. Someone would say, oh, well, you know, it's a coin produced in, in ancient Athens or, or in ancient Rome or, or any of the sort of mints associated with those empires. In but, antiquity. Yes, in antiquity. But the reality is actually a little bit more complex because there are actually a number of different ways to sort of periodize ancient and medieval coins. Now, periodization is a term popular among historians. It basically just means how you denote different eras. So you might say that people talk about the American century, right? The of the 20th century. That's a that is a periodization technique. You would say, well, the 20th century was characterized by the sort of ascendance of America. Some people would say that. Just and like so you might look that. at the uh, 19th century as the sort of the British century, right? Because of the Victoria, yeah, sure. the Victorian era and all that. Right, yeah, yeah. A Victorian era is actually a useful periodizing device. So, so ancient coins – now, in general historical scholarship, many historians uh, take 476, the date of the fall of Rome, to be the end of antiquity, sort of the beginning of the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages or however you want to conceptualize it. And many ancient coin collectors actually hew to this definition. Some think of coins minted at or before uh, 476 – as being ancient, whereas others think that there's actually a greater degree of continuity into what some people would call medieval coinage, in that since the Byzantine Empire was left intact after the fall of Rome, the Byzantine Empire kept right on chugging, and their coin designs weren't all that dissimilar from those of the Roman Empire, some people argue that there are Byzantine issues as late as the 9th century that would constitute ancient coinage. And in fact, there are even Western European issues into the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th centuries that some people actually do consider ancient coins instead of medieval coins. So the definition is pretty hazy, but generally speaking, ancient coins, I think for many people, generally denote 
coins minted by the sort of ancient Greek or Roman empires and all other manner of empires that existed before the fall of Rome in 476. It's a very general definition and there's a lot of debate around it. So this is not the end all be all definition. Sure. And I know from looking at the auction catalogs and the scholarship, uh, you know, in, in coin publications, there often is a demarcation when people talk about what coins are in this type of sale. They'll say ancient Greek and Roman coins, Byzantine coins, some Sometimes the word oriental is used for further east. You'll see Islamic coins. It's funny, though, technically Chinese coins, uh, some of the cash coins that were minted uh, 1,000, 1,500 years ago might, under a certain definition, constitute ancient coinage in a broad sense, in a practical sense, from the hobby standpoint. That's not the case. So because of the sort of hewing to the Western world, the division of the the West and the East, those, while chronologically might fit in some definitions, are not often included. And so when they're talked about in an academic or a retail setting, if you will, uh, economic setting, uh, you know, when they're for sale, they're commercial not, setting. Yeah, commercial setting. setting yeah. Thank you. There's a distinction that's made. Yeah, in that regard. So I'm glad you mentioned Byzantine coins because that is the idea behind This Week in History. Normally, we've been staying fairly close to the modern era, and we've been staying pretty much in U.S. and, and England, maybe a little bit of Europe. So today, let's look at what was happening on December 7th of 574. That was during the Byzantine Empire. So that is when the ruler Justin named the general Tiberius as Caesar, adopted him as his son, Justin II, and withdrew into retirement. So insanity was invading the mind of Justin. He realized, despite his problems, mental faculties, issues, he realized he had to get a a ruler in place. And it was his wife, Sophia's suggestion that he get Tiberius and adopt him as a son, name him as the Caesar. And that's what happened December 7th, 574. The story of what was happening to Justin during his final days, talk about the madness. Uh, He was pulled through the palace on a wheeled throne, biting attendants as he passed. He reportedly ordered organ music to be played constantly throughout the palace in an attempt to soothe his frenzied mind. It's interesting, you know, that he had the faculty at least to name a successor. And both of these men issued gold solidi, that's the plural of solidus, gold solidi coins during their reign. These coins generally show the profile of the ruler on the obverse and various imagery on the reverse. So that was a fitting foray into the past for this week in history, especially. Yeah, it, it sure was. And to expound on the, what motifs were often depicted of the obverses and reverses of different ancient coins, I'd like to turn our attention quickly to one of the most classic ancient coins, classic and collectible ancient coins, perennially popular, the Athenian tetradram of the 6th century BCE. These are incredibly popular uh, Athenian coins minted by the, the city-state of Athens uh, between 525 and 510 uh, BCE. And on their obverse, they depict Minerva, the goddess of wisdom. And or I guess she would have Athena. been called um, She's a, yeah, she would have been called Athena in the Greek in the Greek Correct. context. Minerva is her Roman, Roman counterpart, yeah. Roman incarnation counterpart, whatever. Yes, Athena, Minerva is the other Athens, option. Athena, um, yeah. Right, yeah. Minerva, Athena, yes. So 
And on the reverse uh, is depicted an owl, a traditional symbol of wisdom and a symbol of Athens in the Athenian uh, city-state. Now, on an interesting personal side note, these two designs are very distinctive and, and very very famous, very eye catching. A friend of mine who's a she, she works as a as a, as a school teacher, she uh, she got a tattoo. This was a couple. This was I think like two or three years ago. She got a tattoo on her shoulder of the owl of Athena with the AOE that appears on the Athenian tetradram. It looks almost exactly like the tetradram. And I'd known her for a number of years, and and I was surprised. I go, oh, you know, you have the the tetradram tattoo. That's cool. She goes, she cocks and goes, what? What's a tetradram? <laughs> so we had this uh, this very funny conversation about how you know, like she got it as a as an acknowledgement of a powerful female deity and a symbol of wisdom, uh, and I was looking at it purely through a numismatic context. So the symbolism of Athens pops up in a lot of places, but especially on the uh, the tetradrams, which are. Absolutely beautiful and perennially popular collectible ancient coins. Yes, the uh, Tetradram is a totally cool choice for a tattoo if one were <laughs> to go that direction with it. I think speaking of, uh, of ancient wisdom, I think we need to bestow a little bit of wisdom on the audience with uh, this week's trivia answer and question. Yes, so... so- so the question the last time we met, the last time you heard from us, it actually mentioned a topic that has been the focus of an enormous sum of discussion in an earlier episode, and that was the Nova Constellatio coins. And the question, because we had the esteemed John Kralovich on, we wanted to get something with a colonial bent to it, was where were these coins struck, the Nova Constellatio coppers Constellatio coppers struck. It should be relatively easy, I think. Do you have any idea, Chris? I do remember from our conversation with uh, Frank Noel a uh, number of episodes ago. I think it's probably, I forget what episode that is, sometimes somewhere in the teens or 20s. Yeah, I think teens, I think. Teens, yeah, and we go back and find the episode. It's right in the it's right in the title. If you're interested, and if you haven't heard the episode yet, he did mention that they circulated extensively in Philadelphia, Boston, New York. You know, major eastern coastal sort of financial, economic, and commercial hubs. Yeah, commercial hubs. Exactly. My gut would say to me that it was minted in one of those locations, but I remember him saying that it was somewhere in England, right? Yes. So when we think of alternative coinage production, late 1700s, England, there's really only one place that comes to mind, and that's Birmingham. Uh, Birmingham, right. the site of uh, you know, the Industrial Revolution, Bolton and Watt. Bolton and Watt are featured on the current 50-pound note from Great Britain. That was the just the epicenter for button manufacturing and tokens and, and all sorts of things. And Birmingham was indeed the site where the uh, Nova Constellatio pieces were made. It is actually a wonderful, there's a great resource about all the stuff that was struck in Birmingham, written by uh, Richard Doty, I believe. But in in any event, it's um, England, industrial, you know, early industrial revolution era, and it's uh, uniquely linked to the American coinage or token series and to early and to early american numismatic history because they were based on the patterns of the, the 1783 you know morris patterns the sort of the coins we almost had uh as a as a country yeah so it makes for really um they make really really cool collectibles and for someone who wants the nova constellatio coins but some of the nova the the no, 1783 the morris patterns are unique i think and i think 
any that aren't unique, you'd have to pay astronomical sums of money for. So for a collector who wants the design but isn't that well capitalized, uh, the Nova Consoladio uh, copper tokens present uh, a really great opportunity. Now we got to get to, Jeff, what is our question for this week? What, uh, what have you picked out for us? So in light of the foray into ancient history, we're going to ask a question that recalls a famous individual. It's expert level question according to the Coin Roll Trivia game, but I suspect in reality it is not expert level. But we'll have that answer next week. You're welcome to weigh in between now and then. But the question this week is, legionary denarius, or denarii when you're talking plural, legionary denarii were issued by which first century BC Roman person? So which person in Roman history was behind the issue of these fame? I mean, it's a very famous series of coins. If I say it much more, is. say much more than that, I, you know, I'm, I'm afraid I could give it away. Let this tickle your brain. Give it some thought. If you've paid rudimentary attention to ancient Roman coinage history, the name may just be there on the tip of your tongue. That's where it will have to rest or remain until we are back one week hence with the answer. All right. All right. So, so Jeff, do you want to do the um? Do you want to do this week in Coin World or not? I, I'm. Yeah, you know, uh, for the listeners, this is something we've started more recently. I think one of the strengths that CoinWorld has that is underutilized is is this idea that we have an almost 60-year history. Next year is our 60th anniversary, and we don't tap into that enough. So uh, we, I, I don't know, you just threw the, uh, the metaphorical dart at the board and came up with 1988 as as the year yeah, that's literally the way we the way we decide what year we're going to do at any given week i just go on to google and if you type in number ge- random number generator google has its own little thing it'll spit out this uh you can enter the number range you want so then i type in you know uh you know 1960 which is the first year the coin world was was published uh, and then 2019 the current year and then I just click random. <laughs> it's just, it's then whatever number it spits out is usually what we go with. Unless the one exception to that is we do random years for each week, unless one of our guests has a specific connection to Coin World, or there's a very specific achievement of theirs that's associated or occurred in a given year. Yeah, in which case, find that. And, and yeah, in which case we'll that. probably just do that. So we've done 1962, we did 1969, we did 2007. It's just kind of fun. So now and we it's are... It's also fun to picture what was happening in the world back in those years. So anyway. uh, picture it now. The, the, the issue is December 7th, 1988. You have a, an outgoing President Reagan and incoming George H.W. Bush. What was going on in the numismatic market? You had, gosh... The idea of third-party grading was still just a few years young. You hadn't had the peak bubble that happened in 1989 with commemorative coin prices. What was the big headline in Ugh. Coin World that week? The top story in Coin World that week revolved around 1988 Olympic coinage commemorative coins from the U.S. Mint. And it was interesting Athletes were sort of enlisted to promote the coins. Uh, 117 athletes made one-day appearances at stores, names who 
are familiar only to those, certainly not modern shoppers, right? Uh, Sears, Kmart, Montgomery Wards. I don't, I don't, I think there might be a few Sears and Kmarts left. There certainly are no Montgomery Wards, but I don't um, know what Montgomery Ward is. So well, I think it, that it was a department right. store. So, uh, really? and, and yes, and What's that was department store. <laughs> oh gosh, millennial. <laughs> so I think I'm technically a Gen Zer. Whatever doesn't matter. Whatever. So anyway, the um, the coins at that point to to October 31st of 1988 had raised almost or a little shy of 19.7 million dollars in surcharges that went to the United States Olympic Committee. But the athletes were enlisted from December 1 to 18, December 1st through 18th in 1988 to go promote these coins. What an interesting, I I think an object lesson in how modern commemorative coins could be promoted. Other coins could be promoted. You know, if we're, if we're to get the hobby to wider reaches, that is something that sort of, that was a natural fit. And I think we need to look for more natural fits today. It's interesting, you know, as we look back at these issues, the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? So 1988 was 31 years ago. And you go to the letters section and something that caught (laughs) your eye, Chris, was, um, was, was a topic that is, is perennial, to yep. uh, to today, what was that? People were complaining about it 31 years ago, and they're they're complaining about it now. So the the, the reason I picked this particular letter out out of all the the things that were sent in, every every week they would publish half a dozen to a dozen, depending on the length of the different letters. They would publish half a dozen to a dozen letters, and this one caught my eye because of the the floweriness of the title. It's titled "Decimal Grades a Monstrosity." I saw the word monstrosity, and I thought, all right, I gotta I gotta read this. So one Harry Fisher from Ardmore, Pennsylvania wrote, I was told that a grading of 64.5 has come into existence. In other words, the decimal system in the coin hobby has arrived. Although I admit the newcomer is very nice in appearance and has a sound agreeable to the ears when spoken, the creature has most of its body disarranged. A monstrosity! Exclamation point. We all hunger for normalcy, and why not? Harry Fisher, Ardmore, Pennsylvania. I mean, the way he's describing it, it sounds like some kind of a, a monstrous creature. <laughs> I think what he's alluding to would be what we would describe today as an MS-64 plus or an MS-64 star, basically a coin that grades between a 64 and a 65. And I guess in 1988, half grades existed. And there's been some talk about making the grading system a little bit more precise and about, you know, Ron Guth has suggested a hundred point grading system. Different people have suggested making the mint state grades a little bit more granular just so that, you know, there can be a little bit more precision in terms of how uh, coins with different amounts of wear can be, or damage or lack thereof, can be best characterized. The, the, but, flip, um, the flip side of that, this person, bro. This person is not mint words. It is, half grades are a monstrosity. Yeah, the the flip side to that is this um, this idea that there are thirty different grades of uncirculated coins. The average collector couldn't describe it, couldn't identify some of what these are, and it's uh, certainly a market based thing where you know the dealers are trading different coins. They're they're breaking out coins they think can upgrade that sort of thing when when there's a potential profit. But the average collector, uh, at least in in my uh, small little mind. Uh, I, I think it's um, 
it's hard to make the distinction between a 34 and a, I'm sorry, a 63 and a 64. It can be. It, it's not that it's overkill, but it's, there has to be a way that we talk about some of these topics that don't scare people off because that can be something that is too onerous, uh, dare I say, a monstrosity for a newcomer to consider. <laughs> So um, there's there's some truth to that. I do think that there's there's a tendency, particularly for higher end material and particularly among dealers who deal in higher end material. I think there's a tendency to sort of throw a lot of jargon at consumers and and say, oh, well, this is a this is a 64 star looks good for the grade, you know. Which, I mean, I guess that itself is not that hard a characterization to follow, but I, I take your meaning that for, for someone who, who isn't going to spend thousands of dollars on a coin or doesn't have one very specific coin in a very specific grade they're looking for, or isn't assembling a grade set where all the coins have to be really, really consistent in, in a given grade, I agree with you that there's, there's such a thing as too much detail, and brevity can, to some extent, be the soul of wit. And every once in a while, I do think that people need to step back and say, all right, whether this coin grades a 62, 63, 64, 62 star, whatever, it could still be a really beautiful coin. And eye appeal and historical value, to some extent, aren't necessarily well expressed in these sort of technical, jargon-laden descriptions and explanations that are often sort of foisted on people. So I'm sympathetic of that. I just thought it was funny that he described half grades as a monstrosity. I just thought that was such a... I, I just thought he, he was putting, in my opinion, rather a fine point on it. But it was still... Um, it was an interesting letter. And, you know, it's fun to just look back at uh, the year that was in uh, 1988. Absolutely. And before we go... You know, you talk about the things that matter, especially to somebody who's coming into the hobby at, at, a, at a beginner level type or a different level, is the fun that can be had. And so another letter that week uh, really had a, a, a fun story to tell. This was uh, Daughter Finds Gold Half Eagle. D.W. Conrath of Elmhurst, Illinois, wrote, For about 10 years now, I have owned a metal detector. In all my wanderings through parks, playgrounds, beaches, etc., my total fines have amounted to about 53 cents and about 6,434 metal can pop tabs. I doubt he really counted all those. I'm just guessing that's a made-up number. But anyway, recently, my 8-year-old daughter, Kate, and I were at a local park. She disappeared for five minutes to venture up a hill that is used in the winter as a toboggan slide. She returned from the hill with a puzzled look on her face, clutching something in her hand. To my total amazement, she had found an 1881 $5 gold coin in fine condition. That evening, we returned to the park armed with shovels, picks, and a metal detector to find the mother load. But it was not to be. Her find was a solitary find. I could only think about the countless hours spent trying to find what she had accidentally found. So, interesting. His daughter at the time was eight years old. I was nine. So this is somebody, you know, I can sort of relate to this, being out and going into the, um, the winter wilderness and, and having fun. Gosh, I, I would love to... The one positive thing of dealing with winter is to go find a gold coin. So uh, <laughs> I, I, I doubt yeah. that'll I doubt that'll happen, but maybe maybe it'll happen if it happens to you. Let us know. And, yeah, absolutely. Um, and in the meantime, uh, we have a different sort of treasure for you—a treasure for the ears. We hope uh, an interview with Peter Tompa, who gets into much earlier coinage than that 1881 gold half eagle, something uh, really two thousand years before that. 
and lots of lots of interesting insights to the market, the battle for ownership of ancient coins, how to a, a very a very interesting debate that yeah. I think. I'd love to weigh in on at some point uh, ourselves. That'll yeah, definitely be yeah. a future podcast topic. Yeah, there, there's a way to um, talk about these things uh, respectfully and, and appreciate both sides of, you know, the archaeological community, the collector community. We hope you enjoy this interview with Peter and find it to be full of some golden insights and thoughts. Here it is. We are delighted to be joined today with Peter Tompa, who is the executive director of the Ancient Coin Collectors Guild. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So let's talk about what your role entails at ACCG, talk about how long that organization has been around, and uh, what its goal is. Well, the ACCG was formed some years back in order to provide a voice for collectors. Um, At the time, the organization was formed by Wayne Sales. Wayne Sales is sort of a legend in the um, in the hobby. He's a long-term coin collector, uh, especially of ancient coins. He's wrote, written a number of books. Very helpful um, books. He was concerned about uh, the fact that the United States government was starting to consider import restrictions on a whole range of cultural goods, but in particular coins. The problem is that the way the, the State Department and the U.S. Customs applies these restrictions, they're not prospective uh, restrictions targeting items that are illicitly removed from a particular country, but rather an embargo on all types of the same type of coin. So that's that's uh, you know put a major crimp at least on ancient coin collecting and there's been some proposals recently to extend this to more modern issues. There was recently a request from uh, from Ecuador, which has not yet been acted upon, which sought or uh, which seeks um, import controls on South American coins. So in other words, the Spanish colonial types and then also the early Republican types of Ecuador. So that was the the motivating factor of. Um, setting up this organization. We've tried to really raise awareness on the issue within the hobby, which is a little bit difficult because most people actually collect, obviously, American coins, but it does impact uh, strongly people who collect ancient coins and then potentially now uh, foreign coins. You mentioned in your description of the ACCG its opposition to legislation or you know, or legislative efforts more broadly to place embargoes on certain types of coins. In February of this year, the Supreme Court rejected a petition for certiorari appealing a Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals decision which seemed to uphold some kind of a decision that mandated the forfeiture of specific types of coins imported from Cyprus and China after the effective date of certain regulations. The argument that you advanced seemed to be that only coins that were exported illicitly should be targeted by those kind of import-export regulations. How indicative is this episode of the kind of work that you and ACCG more broadly do? And what does it say about the legal decisions that surround ancient coin importing and exporting? Well, I mean, this was, we're a small organization, so this uh, particular effort took uh, quite a bit of time. And it, in fact, took uh, far more time than we had hoped. So basically, it started off as a, an attempt to test regulations on uh, that had been put into place with regards to Cypriot and then Chinese coins. And the, the prompting of it was that we had learned that an advisory committee, which was responsible for making recommendations to the to the State Department, uh, had opposed the import research 
points, but the uh, State Department decision maker, um, Dina Powell, rejected that decision. And when the State Department announced the decision, they made a misleading claim that the the Cultural Property Advisory Committee had actually supported it, uh, which they didn't. Then we subsequently learned that Dina Powell, when she made this decision, did so after she had accepted a job with Goldman Sachs, where she was recruited by and um, worked directly for the spouse of someone who later became the founder of an archaeological advocacy organization, but she presumably was interested in the issue you know, before she founded that organization. So because of that, we thought it was important to test the regulations and this, how they were made. Unfortunately, the, um, the court, when, when it looked at it, decided that it's kind of a technical decision, but they decided ultimately that because the State Department made the decision and based upon a, on a delegation from the president, they considered it a quote-unquote foreign policy issue, so the court would not get involved in it. So the court refused to make a decision on that. So that was the first round. So in order to bring that, that case, we actually had to import coins because you need something called standing, uh, and that relates to the fact that federal courts only will take live controversy, so you couldn't, couldn't give them a theoretical dispute, so we actually had to import something. So the, the government was successful in uh, having the case they called bifurcated, so put into two different uh, really proceedings. So the first proceeding was just to determine whether or not we could test the regulations, and the court said no because of they didn't really look at the at the substance. They just said that you know this is a foreign policy issue. So the second aspect of it was a forfeiture action, uh, and unfortunately, uh, you know we argued that you know as a Fifth Amendment constitutional matter, you have to sort of relook at how the actual restrictions operate in, in reality, and that goes to this whole issue of whether or not it's an embargo or, you know, a forward-looking restrictions. And the court, again, said that it was bound by the earlier decision, which, you know, we disagree with because, you know, there's kind of, there's a constitutional issue at this point, but uh, the court did not get into that. And so we are, we are where we are. So this opinion is really only binding in the Fourth Circuit, which, you know, relates to Virginia, Maryland, et cetera, and a couple other states. But it does have potential application elsewhere, and it will certainly, you know, give customs the, you know, the thought that, you know, they could keep on going, doing what they're doing, which is, you know, impose these restrictions based upon MOU requests from other countries. So they've been acting in contact and um, concert with the State Department on this. I mean, it's really originated in the State Department, pushed actually by archaeological advocacy groups working with foreign countries. There's been a whole host of them, ones recently with Middle Eastern countries, uh, again, pushed by the, it's a group called the Antiquities Coalition, which is run by uh, a lady who is, who I referenced previously, who um, is a spouse of a um, high-level Goldman Sachs person. So this organization is very, has very, is extremely well funded. I mean, it, its funding uh, when it started was like $1.2 million, which is a lot for a nonprofit, right? So they, they certainly have a lot of pull. They've been using this to uh, push more and more restrictions on items coming in from uh, MENA or Middle Eastern countries. So there's been a host of them, starting with Egypt and Libya, uh, Algeria recently, and there's some some ones coming up. The one that should be concerned to everyone is Turkey because uh, there's been a proposed, uh, so the State Department announced in the, in a, uh, in the regulations, in the federal regulations, that they received a request from Turkey, and this would be extremely problematical for the ancient coin trade because, and for collectors, because a lot of people collect lots of coins from 
they've been in the market for years and years and years. Uh, you know, there's been a there's a fairly large trade between the United States and Europe on these things, and this could put a crimp on that. So that should be a concern going forward. The other issue that is of concern is there's going to be a renewal of the current restrictions on coins from Italy. So, so currently they don't actually apply to Roman coins, but you know there's always a danger that when the issue comes up again next year, there will be an effort to extend it to Roman coins, which would be extremely problematical because most people who collect ancient coins collect Roman coins. And when you're talking about coins of Turkey, coins of Rome, we're viewing things through the current geopolitical landscape and back then, you know, the map looked very different. These coins were traded all over. Can you necessarily identify a coin that was issued in, a, say, an eastern province or this or that or whatever as something that would land itself inside the modern confines of any of these given nations that have had these memorandums of understanding, the MOUs to which you referred? Yeah, I mean, that's what we've been arguing. That was our initial argument, obviously, and it's sort of like putting a square peg in a, in a round hole kind of thing. Uh, in fact, when the, um, when the underlying statute, the Cultural Property Implementation Act, was being considered, they asked uh, Mark Feldman, who was one of the top State Department lawyers, uh, he was like the, he was actually the top career person over there. The congressman asked him, "Well, is this going to apply to coins?" And he said, "Theoretically, yes, but as a practical matter, I you know I find it hard to believe that it would apply to coins, and this would be the reason." So you you hit the nail on the head. A lot of these coins they circulated quite widely, so you can't make an assumption that they that they were found in these modern nation states. And this is why CPAC initially agreed with us, and CPAC being the Cultural Property Advisory Committee, this advisory committee I referenced that's referenced in the statute, and recommended against import restrictions on coins, which was affirmed by the State Department with regard to Italy uh, once, and then Cyprus once before it changed in 2007, uh, which sort of prompted everything. And since then, they've just been imposing import restrictions on coins, even though, you know, as a factual matter, it's hard to make this assumption. And the problem is, is when the things come into the United States, the people on, at customs, you know, see this list, and if the coin's on of a type on the list, then it's subject to detention and seizure. And you have, the burden of proof is on you, not on the government, to prove that it was not illicitly exported before the date of restriction. So that's where the problem comes in, because it's it's difficult to prove because a lot of this material really does not have a long documentary history that we can look at. And, you know, uh, and the statute itself uh, provides for you can make your proofs with affidavits, but customs has been known to suggest that the only thing we'll accept is an actual picture in a auction catalog showing that the coin was out of, you know, for example, Italy uh, before the date of restriction. You could imagine how few coins are actually pictured in auction catalogs. Well, I, 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 mean, I'm, thing. I, I mean, there are there are literally tens of thousands of coins available for $50 or less, 50 euros or less, that nobody images, nobody catalogs, even hardly today. And, and what constitutes an auction catalog? Sometimes there's group lots. There's That, that seems to be um, particularly onerous. It is. I mean, one of the issues is that customs enforcement has been extremely spotty so if you sort of get caught in there in the web you're in big trouble but a lot of things just you know sail through you know i would note when 
we certainly advise people to follow the law. And uh, it's a lot of people who import things just do not follow the law based upon probably ignorance for the most part. Uh, also, there are, are people who, uh, you know, are concerned about putting on the package, you know, what's in it because they're concerned that, for theft. But the fact of the matter is if you do import something into the U.S., uh, you're supposed to pr- provide proper paperwork with it, which is how customs sort of determines whether or not they should stop an item. You should, when you're importing something, uh, have the right country of origin, which is the country of manufacture as far as they're concerned, um, and then the proper value. This could potentially trigger customs looking at it, especially since they've changed the codes uh, that are used for um, for coins. Now, their ancient coins are all uh, considered archaeological items, and you're supposed to use the the proper number for that. I mean, but there's a lot of ignorance in the in the field, and customs has not done a good job reaching out in terms of telling people what they need to do to import things properly. I will say, IAPM. If you look at the International Association of Professional Numismatists website, they do actually have the certifications that at least the law states that are necessary in order to import coins from certain countries. So you just go on their website and they have the certifications on there that you can use. Uh, again, it's all you know up to the discretion of the person, you know, the customs officer. So you know they could potentially ask for more information. They could potentially ask for. Um, pictures in an auction catalog and they have in the past but it you know varies by the person so if they do that's that's a problem because it's it's hard to obviously prove that show documentation that doesn't exist to stick with the theme of legislation you recently released a statement panning a bill that just passed the house HR 2513 right. that ostensibly closes loopholes that terrorist groups and other bad actors allegedly used to make money selling looted antiquities. Now, you and ACCG have both made a number of public statements indicating your belief or expressing your belief that claims about terrorist funding through antiquities are exaggerated or in some cases almost fabricated. What are your specific issues with this piece of legislation? And do you consider antiquities sales to fund terrorists and bad actors and other groups? Do you consider that to be justification for legislation? And if not, why? Well, I mean, the problem is that, you know, terrorist groups will use, and ISIS certainly used everything they they could to fund itself. But antiquities, in fact, were such a very small part of their funding effort. The GAO, uh, Government Accounting Office, looked at this pretty closely based upon some information that was gleaned from a a special forces raid of one of the top financiers of ISIS, uh, Abu Sayyaf, and they they found documentation that he had about what they how they were funding their organization, including with regard to antiquities. And it turns out that they didn't actually sell antiquities themselves. Instead, they collected a tax on people who found them, and it appears based upon the documentation that has been made public that. ISIS was only making a couple hundred thousand dollars to a couple million dollars a year, and you have to consider the fact that their budget was estimated to be, you know, many times that. You know, all, I, I believe it's about a billion, you know, at its height. And this is what this is at its height, so you have to keep that in mind. And now, of course, ISIS is, uh, for the most part, a bad memory. So it was highly exaggerated, and to use that as a basis to impose 
really costly regulations on a whole industry is just total overkill. But at the Antiquities Coalition, which is, again, the same organization, which I've referenced previously, has been pushing this issue. They have pushed it in Congress. They just sort of initiated in the House because their founder, I believe, spoke at a congressional hearing about you know this link or supposed link between terrorism and the antiquities trade, uh, and that sort of prompted this move to uh, include it in this bill. So the bill itself is a bill that does a whole bunch of things related to money laundering, but it specifically uh, relates to the antiquities trade. So it does some general things, but one small section of the bill sort of suggests or states that it gives uh, the FinCEN, which is a which is a Treasury Department entity, the ability to regulate the antiquities trade. The extent of the regulations would be based upon a study, but the study is sort of a justification type type study uh, because it doesn't, you know, doesn't ask for proof that there really is a problem. It assumes there's a problem, and the study is just to determine the scope of the reg. So the problem, though, is that when we spoke to people on Capitol Hill last term. They said the regulations would most likely look like the regulations that jewelers and bullion dealers currently have to comply with. So those regulations, uh, there's a very low threshold of $50,000 gross business per year, which is when you think about gross, it's not a lot. So if you're grossing $50,000, you are probably making what, you know, Ten, twenty thousand per year. Uh, the problem is the regulations themselves are costly to comply with because you need to uh, come up with a AML compliance plan, and then you need to have an audit annually from an independent auditor. Uh, so that is going to cost you know two to you know six thousand probably per year. And then you have to designate someone who in your organization to be the, your you know AML anti-money law. That's that's anti-money um, so laundering, talking, right? You're talking about small companies. I mean, this is kind of ridiculous. Uh, small companies with low capitalization, they're not making a lot of money. If it's, if they're making twenty thousand a year, and they have to spend you know two to six thousand of that on complying with us, you can imagine. You know, let's just get out of the business. And this really should concern everyone in the coin trade because. The term in the bill, antiquities, is is really an ambiguous term. I mean, generally speaking, it means anything, you know, medieval or before, but, you know, there are other definitions, and there there have been situations in, in U.S. law where they sort of, they basically treat an antiquity as an antique, which is just something 100 years old. But in any case, I mean, ancient coin dealers should, and people who sell medieval coins should be very concerned about this. Most of them are very small businesses, like one or two people, right? So when we were looking at this further, we found some data that suggests that there's maybe 5,000 coin dealers in the United States. And of those, again, this is just a guesstimate, but speaking to it's like speaking to Cliff Mishler, who is actually an ACCG board member who was the former president of the ANA. It's his belief, and it actually sounds about reasonable to me, that probably around two-thirds of the people of that 5,000 are part-time people. And so they, they sell coins just, uh, you know, either to make some additional money or, you know, just basically to feed their hobby, you know, because they, you know, you get a tax ID number and, you know, you can, there's some benefits in buying from others if you, if you're a member of the trade. So, you know, you can think about the part-timers, how that would affect them. I mean, a lot 
logically, you would think there would be a lot of people dropping out. It's not. This is not a situation where people, you know, they may think they could sort of float under the radar screen, but that's not going to happen because the banks are the enforcers of this. So the banks are the ones, you know, if you're in an industry that's regulated by FinCEN, they're going to want to know, you know, do you check the boxes? Do you have your AML plan? Do you, you know, are you getting an audit? Because if you don't do that, they're just going to close your account because they don't want to be liable either. So that's why it's a problem, okay? And there's, you know, potential criminal sanctions as well. Another thing that is sort of in the background, it's probably not as much of a problem for or a concern for coin collectors, but it would certainly be for, you know, antiquity collectors of, you know, particularly large, valuable pieces. One of the provisions of AML is that this information is shared not only with U.S. law enforcement, but foreign law enforcement, and that sort of raises the specter of, you know, not only are you on a database that's accessible by the, you know, FBI, customs, etc., but it, that information is shared with countries like Egypt, etc., who were very aggressive in trying to uh, repatriate artifacts. So it's concerning on a lot of levels. The good news is that all this, though this has passed the House, it's a bit questionable in the Senate, and I think we need to work to. Uh, uh, ensure that the Senate thinks about this long and hard before they go along, along with what the what the House has done. And I, we've requested people who live in states where the senator is on the banking committee that they they contact the, uh, their senator and express concerns about that. If you could go to the ACCG web page, there's I'm sorry, the ACCG um, Facebook page, there's information on how to do that. Speaking of the Senate, we're going to stop the filibuster here and throw a few more questions your way. Sure. <laughs> so aside from H.R. 2513, which is the most sort of recent uh, legislative effort regarding uh, import-export regulations, what does the rest of the legislative landscape look like for ancient coin collectors? And what are other major issues that the ACCG is, is advocating or lobbying for? That's uh, anti-money laundering. Anti-money laundering. We we want to clarify. Yeah. Right. The importer strips. So those two are the are the major things right now. I mean, ACCG is a very very small organization. You know, some of the issues that are out there, which would be helpful to us, is what you know. There's also very draconian import restrictions being proposed for things going into Europe. We don't know exactly how they were going into how they will be um, enforced and the parameters of the regulations themselves. But you know, on their face, the EU has adopted really, really draconian rules for for cultural items coming from outside the EU. So, you know, they're thinking in particular Egypt, places like that, Africa. Uh, again, the justification was terrorism, which is <laughs> disconcerting because there's not that much evidence for that. But basically, uh, you know, there's a whole different there's a whole different number of rules. But if you're exporting items to the EU and they're not they didn't originate in the EU in the sense that they weren't made there, it could be problematical to export them in the next couple of years. So because of that, it would be great if all these concerns, you know, that have been raised and the, and the basis for this are predicated really on the idea that um, there's terrorism out there that collectors are funding in the third, that, but it relates to items in the third world, you know, like 
would be great if, if it would be possible to consider trade between the EU and the U.S. differently. I mean, maybe drop some of the current restrictions that we have in terms of trade between the two. But, you know, how, how that can happen is another question. But, but theoretically, you know, the concerns, is, given the fact that concerns that are being raised relate to things coming from third world countries to either the U.S. or the EU. You know, there's stuff that's been, you know, in the trade free circulation, the U.S. and the EU for years and years and years. So why can't we just, you know, trade with each other, right? I'd be hard-pressed, or the other side would be hard-pressed to make an argument as to why that trade should be limited by um, regulations that really relate to trade with, you know, these third-world countries in the, like Iraq or or the, the second third world countries like Iraq and Syria. Something we should consider too, but how to do that, that's another well, question. Specifically in the context of the European Union and in, in trade relations between the United States and that group, where does the legacy of European imperialism and other instances of cultural theft between cultures, does that factor into the ACCG's advocacy efforts and considerations for the measures that you propose? Well, I mean, it's certainly, I think that's, that's one of the arguments that is raised by, you know, archaeological advocacy groups, etc., that it's not only a legal issue, but there's a moral issue in terms of past colonialism. But in terms of coins, I mean, you know, keep in mind, these items were meant to circulate. And in many of these places, even if there's a law on the books that suggests that, oh, you know, the state owns property, owns, you know, everything that's a cultural item over X number of years old, there's still a trade in, the, in those items, which is, you know, quite often open. Like one thing I would like to point out to people is in regards to Syria, you know, the what you hear from the archaeological groups are, you know, all trade and anything ancient was illegal, but I have uh, friends who worked abroad and have worked in Syria, and they've gone to Palmyra, and there's ancient coins for sale there, you know, in stores, you know, so that's one of the issues. And then places like Egypt, you know, before the 1980s, they, there was a trade there. So you really can't make this assumption that, you know, everything that's removed there was a result of colonialism. A lot of it was just, you know, openly sold uh, within those countries, especially for coins. I mean, we're not talking about major, major artifacts. So it's an issue, but... You know, it's one that's raised by the other side, and it doesn't really have much or shouldn't have much traction with coins, particularly because, you know, there were items that were actually made to circulate. You know, they weren't, you know, cultural items that were meant to stay in the country ever. And these import restrictions are kind of contrary to the original intent of what the coins were used for. So what does the market look like for ancient coins since the application of these import restrictions? Has that depressed prices? Has that increased prices because items are suddenly uh, easier to get? I know that anybody looking in an auction catalog, at least a, a really good one, will see the reference to these items being identified as located in a certain place before the application of some of these laws. How has all of this affected the market for ancient coins, and, and what's the future of that? It's certainly, I think it's affected the antiquity market more, but it certainly has started to affect the ancient coin market. So items with a solid provenance, uh, the value has gone up dramatically, and items that don't have a solid provenance, you know, it's sort of stayed flat. You know, by way of example, I, I, I like to collect... I have a 
huge number. I like to collect coins from southern Italy and Sicily. And uh, last or recently, I was looking at a at a Syracusean tetradrachm in a CNG sale, which was you know a good, very fine coin, but it had a long provenance back to the 1920s that you know was established. And you know, I put in what was a reasonable bid for this thing, and it went you know multiple times over the. Uh, over the estimate, and that I assume, given the condition of the coin, because it was you know, a nice, good, very fine coin, but not a spectacular piece, uh, all that added value was because of the provenance. And, you know, we're talking about something where it's published provenance in the 1920s, essentially. So it's increased the value of provenance items. I think the rest of the items are flat, and I think if you talk to dealers, prices in general are, are just flat. And I think, you know, part of it is just the graying of the hobby, and there's probably less entry-level people now, unfortunately. So so where does the recent hoard that people are willing to address but not openly or publicly, all the Athenian tetradrams, uh, yeah, uh, the owl, it, yeah. there's just an outpouring of these entering the marketplace, and there's no acknowledgement of where these were found, how these were found, and, you know, it would seem to me that there's a way to square the circle. There's a way to to honor the balance of having an archaeological record but allowing for a trade in these objects to help support the cost of, of those things like, you know, what happens in the United Kingdom with the portable antiquity scheme. Is this good or bad for the hobby that this is this hoard is out there and it's just one of presumably many hoards that aren't being recorded? I think. Because it encourages people to record coins, and, and it recognizes that the state doesn't need to hold everything, and basically it's a it's a for, right of first refusal for the state. Unfortunately, other countries have not adopted it, and because of that, these hoards do go on the market. You know, I think, in my view, it's I think it's problematic at this point in time to deal in coins from hoards like that because. You know, it is, it's potentially problematic, but you know, I have seen these coins on the market. I wouldn't say there's a large number of hoards on the market right now. That one, there is certainly Athenian coins on the market, but in terms of other ones, I'm not so sure. Athenian coins, it's interesting. They're not actually on the designated list for Greece, and that makes sense because they did circulate forever, and I assume that these coins did not come from Greece, but came from elsewhere. But it's a fortune that we don't know the history, and you know, I will say in the old days, you know, I have a whole, I have a whole bunch of them. I have these coin hoards books, and it used to be that dealers would you know, be happy to tell the academics who put together these coin hoard books, you know, where the hoard came from. But now <laughs> that's not the case, right? Because you know, it, it could be just a cause for, for problems. You also got to keep in mind, though, that sometimes hoards that come in the market have actually been out for a long time, and you know people hold on to them for a long time, and they they sell them. So that happens sometimes too. But I mean, I, I just don't know the answer for that Athenian hoard that you're speaking of. And you're right; there, it must be a very large hoard because of a lot of coins on the market that particular type. You mentioned that in days past, that you know private collectors were more deliberate about cataloging their finds and then that academics who were producing the catalogs operated more closely with independent collectors. I wonder if there's and, – and there seems to be some mutual antagonism between those two camps. Specifically, I would point to on the ACCG's website, there's a claim that efforts from, quote, ideologues within the archaeological establishment – 
are threatening private collectors and then, you know, there are, are allegations in an opposite direction made by the other camp. What is the root of this antagonism and to what extent could it be sort of mollified? I think over time the archaeological community has gotten a lot more ideological and supportive of very broad claims of ownership of uh, foreign countries. I mean, it used to be that uh, some very, very prominent collectors are also very, very prominent archaeologists, right? There are still some archaeologists who who collect coins, but they tend to be quiet about it, right? The antagonism isn't with the entire archaeological field. I mean, it's like anything else. There's activists everywhere, right? And so you really, it's in some ways, it's a little bit, um, it's not quite accurate uh, because what you're really talking about are activists within that field who probably have a disproportionate voice. And, you know, it helps when they're associated with groups like the Antiquities Coalition, given their budget, right? So they have a big megaphone. But I think there's a lot of actually archaeologists who are less concerned about things like coin collecting, but the ones who are loud about it are loud about it, and they do have a big megaphone, and they do have influence. That's a problem. So that's where, you know, why we have, you know, concerns about embargoes as opposed to prospective import restrictions, right? And I think the trade and you know, ACCG would, we'd be much less concerned about this if it wasn't an embargo, uh, but it is an embargo, and that's something that's pushed by, by the other side. Um, so it, what gets lost in, in that uh, shouting via the megaphone? What are the misconceptions about the collecting of ancient coins by individuals and in public institutions? What's missing from this debate then? Frankly, I think on the other side, there's a view that the only people who should be dealing with this are experts in the field, or academic experts, and they would rather that there aren't any collectors at all, uh, and it should just be something that is studied by academics, and the only entities that should own ancient coins are public bodies, uh, mostly in foreign, you know, in the countries where they were made. So, I mean, that's kind of an extreme view, but that's kind of the view that's out there from archaeological advocacy groups, and they're the ones who are pushing the agenda. So in that tension you describe between public and and private or individual collecting, where is an appropriate balance between those two pursuits? And is the end goal of both groups greater public access to these objects or – is the interest, at least on the part of the ACCG, more interested in maintaining collectors' opportunities to acquire new material? Because it seems to me that both camps, so to speak, are capable of providing public access to these things, whether it's private ownership or displaying objects of cultural significance. Where do you strike that balance and where would an ideal balance in your view sit? Well, I mean, I think given, you know, coins are they're so common that the ideal balance is that there is a... Um, legitimate trade in the items that private collectors collecting is allowed and encouraged. I mean, especially here in the U.S., most of the actual serious academic work is funded by collectors because, you know, through the ANS or the ANA, there's very few, I mean, the Smithsonian really doesn't do it. They have a large collection, but they don't do anything with it or do very little with it. So, I mean, I think without a strong trade and a strong collector base, the academic study of coins will really, really suffer over time uh, because, you know, here in the U.S., it's certainly quite dependent on on uh, funding from private interests. 
and it's you know also the case in in the UK with the with you know the Royal Numismatic Society, etc. So yeah, I mean I think it's essential. I think that's where the balance should be. I mean in a lot of foreign countries there's a collecting. It may not be legal, but there's still lots of collecting. One of the cases certainly is Bulgaria, where you know there is. There's lots of uh, people out there with metal detectors, and it's not it's not legal, but people do it anyway. You know, it would have been better if the Bulgarians take a hint from the British and just make it, you know, recognize the reality that there are metal detectors out there, uh, put in a recording scheme like the British have, and we, you know, we would all be better off. Um, also, you know, it would also generate income within Bulgaria because the items could be openly sold there. I mean, I think they are sold there. It's just not, maybe not as, as openly as it once was. Um, you know, basically, a lot of these countries where there's an issue, the governments are weak governments or they're corrupt governments or they have don't have a history of democracy. You know, they tend to be authoritarian, so they're authoritarian in everything, including collecting, right? So you've got to keep this in mind. A lot of the, the countries, you think of the countries that, you know, the archaeological groups love to push you know, as, as great examples of, of uh, cultural heritage management, Italy, Greece, etc., Bulgaria, they all have major, major problems in actually funding things adequately, you know. And some of them, you know, there is an open trade. Like Italy, there's a huge internal trade in uh, ancient coins and a, a trade within Europe as well. It's just, you know, because of the import restrictions, stuff's coming here, it's difficult, but it doesn't make really much sense because there's a large internal legal trade there. So, yeah, there's a lot of issues out there, but I think ultimately, you know, without private collecting, you're just not going to have serious, it will hurt academic research into coins if there isn't private collecting and there are so many coins out there, there's no way that governments can really adequately protect, you know, what they have. I mean, they already have huge, huge amounts of coins, you know, in storage in a lot of places. We're going to let that stand as the last word for our discussion with you today. I want to thank you again for taking this time to explore all these various um, sinews of the topic. This is, I sense, something that we could spend hours on, but we know you don't have the time and our listeners don't have the time, but we certainly appreciate this time today, and uh, we will look forward to chronicling the journey of ancient coins and uh, cultural property going forward. Great. Thank you. Happy to do it. Welcome back. That was our interview with Peter Tompa, who's the executive director of the Ancient Coin Collectors Guild. Uh, We hope that was an interesting foray into the modern uh, cultural property debate surrounding ancient coins and some of the things that are really that fascinate collectors about uh, these wonderful artifacts that date back to uh, to ancient times. And if you enjoyed uh, the interview, the episode, and any of our previous content that we've produced, please subscribe on whatever platform at your podcasts. Uh, your support means a lot to us. It helps us keep doing this, and it also just you know lets us know that we're uh, we're doing a reasonably good job. And feel free to uh, reach out to us. I know we've got a couple of emails in the queue that that either I or Jeff need to need to deal with, but you know we'd love to hear from you. And with any luck, we'll uh, we'll have lots more uh, great episodes. So remember, keep on listening and subscribe. Absolutely. But until next time, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, and we'll see you next week. Send us your questions and feedback on Facebook at facebook.com/coinworld or on Twitter at Coin World. 
Be the first to know about our next episode by signing up for our newsletter. Go to coinworld.com and click on free newsletter to sign up today. Thanks for the segue, big voice guy. This is Brian again reminding you to sign up for the CoinWorld email newsletters. It's free and easy to do. Just click on the link I put in the show notes, choose your topics, and the high-quality content you expect from CoinWorld will be on its way shortly. So click on that link to sign up, and thanks for listening to the show.